Roaming on Campus, episode 24. In this episode, I'm joined with PhD psychiatry student Kenneth Shinozuka as we take the red pill and explore the Oxford Psychedelic Society. We are recording Roaming on Campus, episode 24. Hello and welcome. As always, it's your host, Kenny Macheka. And today, I'm joined with a n- n- neuroscientist. He studies, he's studying f- for a PhD at Oxford University. He comes from New York. Kenneth Shinozuka, welcome on board. Thanks for having me. Thank you for coming. And it seems that you're quite the man. You've uh, been on TED like a couple years ago, right? Uh, A while ago. Yeah, that was. um, So I gave that presentation in November of 2014 and then it was uploaded um, on the website like three months later. So, yeah, it's it's been a while. (laughs) Nice, nice. And that was like regarding your grandfather that you made this uh, this invention to like help with his dementia, right? Exactly, exactly. Yeah. So my grandpa had Alzheimer's for 12 years. Um, and, uh, towards the end of his life, he started wandering out of bed a lot at night. And, uh, my aunt was his primary caregiver and she would have many sleepless nights where she would stay awake all night to keep an eye on him. Um, and my grandpa, because he had Alzheimer's had a vision impairment. So he was pretty much blind, um, towards the end of his life. And so whenever he got out of bed at night, he would fall down on the floor. And so there was a need, there was a real need for, for us to be able to, um, to, to be notified when he got out of bed. Um, also so that my aunt could sleep better at night. So I worked on this sensor, um, that would alert my aunt at her smartphone whenever he got out of bed at night. I see. Nice, nice. So is that, that kind of experience, uh, did that like kind of, um, make you gain more interest in like how the mind works because obviously like your, your grandfather he was having that progression from a normal kind of state yeah, to yeah. one that's kind of not normal right absolutely absolutely so uh when i came into college um i wanted to study neuroscience because i was interested in um working on alzheimer's research so i did research on alzheimer's for two years at this lab in harvard medical school and um, that was interesting for a while, um, but I realized that my true passions um, were elsewhere. Um, when I got, when I, right before I started college, I became really interested in consciousness, actually. Um, mm. And uh, I sort of realized that, uh, that consciousness was actually like the single, the single subject that unified all the things that I was passionate about. And nice, nice. And, and, you know, the study of consciousness is essentially asking this question, well, you know, what is the mind? Um, how, can we, how can we understand what seems to be the first person subjective experience of the world from a third person objective lens? Uh, yeah. And that, that's a really difficult problem to solve um, because it seems to be not just a scientific question, but also a philosophical question. Um, what is the nature of conscious experience? Um, is there something about... Um, conscious experience that you can't really reduce to a third person objective measurement, um, like the felt sensation of pain. What is that? Um, 
how how can you how can you describe that in terms of just you know the activity of chemicals and uh, electricity in the brain? Um, because there seems to be a real disconnect between subjective experience, what it feels like to experience something like pain, um, and you know just uh, the movement of, of of chemicals, of neurotransmitters, of electrical impulses traveling through your brain. Um, yeah. so that, so that was really interesting to me, um, and continues to be really interesting for me. Um, and it's sort of what I, what I want to do research on for, uh, the rest of my life. Nice. Nice. I mean, uh, do you feel as if that, that now that you're at stage, right, that, that you know a lot about the topic, cause I'm sure that, you know, things like, a physicalism, like, a dualism and like, a various opinions from various philosophers but do you feel that you're any kind of better at understanding the the ultimate truth than like when you started do you feel like it's worthwhile do you feel as if yeah it's a great question so um when I first got interested in consciousness um I was interested in this view called idealism um, which in philosophy of mind refers to this idea that everything is just the mind, um, that there is no physical material world. Um, in a sense, every, everything is just consciousness. Um, and uh, I got interested in that view primarily because the um, principal investigator, um, in other words, the, the boss of the lab where I was working uh, on Alzheimer's research, also happened to be an idealist. Um, so Okay. Uh, my boss, um, his like his main field of research was Alzheimer's, but he was also interested uh, in consciousness on the side. Um, and he was actually like the first person who exposed me to this idea that like there's no physical material world. Um, and that was just like really intriguing to me because it was a, 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 an idea that was like sort of totally out of left field. It was um, it was like this sort of like new radical, uh, revolutionary idea that I'd never heard about. So it caught my attention. Um, and for a while I believed in it. Um, and at the same time, I was just like, you know, doing some more reading into, I guess, like the nature of reality in general. Um, and I sort of got interested in like fundamental physics. Um, I was also interested, uh, in, um, this idea in neuroscience that like your brain is essentially just constructing a model of reality. It's sort of hallucinating reality. It doesn't actually represent reality as it truly is. Um, yeah. And that was also really exciting to me as well. Um, I was interested in the uh, research of this guy named Donald Hoffman, um, who was actually uh, uh, who actually is a neuroscientist um, at the university where my parents worked um, back when I lived in California. Uh, and, um, he, yeah, he, he's basically done a lot of research on how the brain's perception of reality is nothing like reality itself. That if evolution is basically trying to maximize survival, uh, and therefore the brain is trying to, um, optimize your ability to survive, um, then your brain's representation of reality totally diverges from reality itself. If you're just trying to survive, then your brain will end up representing reality in a way that is very different from how reality actually is. Um, so I was sort of just interested in this like general sphere of ideas that was saying that like you know uh, the reality that we perceive isn't at all like reality itself. Um, maybe everything is just a projection of consciousness or of the mind. Um, so that was where I initially began, um, and then. And then I sort of like adopted this more conservative view that like maybe there actually is something like a material world out there, um, but nonetheless, consciousness is fundamental. So um, 
In other words, like reality has these two aspects. There's the subjective aspect. Um, and then there's also um, the physical aspect. Um, so I was interested in like this view called panpsychism, um, mm. which depending on how you read it, kind of unifies those two views. It says that there is, um, you know, a physical reality out there, but it has this subjective aspect to it. And the subjective aspect is fundamental. Um, so everything is consciousness, but also physical at the same time. Uh, and, and I think that's where I still am currently, but I'm becoming a little bit more, I guess, just conservative in the way that I view consciousness. Um, I don't think that consciousness is the kind of thing that you can fully understand just by introspection alone. Uh, I don't think you can arrive at the nature of conscious experience just by like asking philosophical questions. Um, about yeah, consciousness. Right. Uh, I do think that like that the uh, like a full account of consciousness is going to be uh, something that um, depends deeply on the physical sciences, um, on you know uh, neuroscience for sure. Um, maybe things as fundamental as um, physics uh, and thermodynamics, um, but it's not just going to be pure philosophy. I see that. Yeah, yeah. I've got like so many things to say. But, but I know yeah. that that will g g g go around in circles. So, um, how does it? Um, how do we like a bridge that with psych psychedelics? Because I understand yeah. that with psychedelics, that they can allow you to have like these altered states of mind that yeah. that make you perceive the universe in a certain way. That yeah. it's like, hmm, there could be more. So, 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 like, first of all, what what are psychedelics and uh, yeah. what what are the benefits in understanding more of how the mind works via their intake? Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, psychedelics are substances that alter your state of consciousness. Um, it's as simple as that. And because of that, psychedelics are also the most reliable tool that we have for studying consciousness in a laboratory setting. Um, there is no other way, as far as I know, to um, alter consciousness as dramatically um, as psychedelics do and as consistently as psychedelics do um, in a laboratory setting. There's also meditation, okay. which is able to produce um, very striking changes in consciousness. But typically you need to have had, you know, many years of experience in meditation or to get to the point where you're able to change your consciousness on command in a, in a laboratory. Um, with psychedelics, you could have you could have zero experience with psychedelics whatsoever. You could be a total novice, walk into a laboratory, take a tab of LSD or you know a few grams of shrooms or or, or some other psychedelic, um, and have your consciousness completely altered. Um, nice, so they're nice. a great tool. Yeah. Um, there are other you know I mean there are other ways of studying consciousness um, in a laboratory setting, but I don't think those are nearly as fascinating as as, as psychedelics. Um, so yeah. when when the neuroscience of consciousness um, first started to become established uh, in the West, um, there were a lot of paradigms that uh, tried to um, study sort of like the moment when um, uh, an object of perception goes from something that is unconsciously perceived to consciously perceived. So, for example, like if I present like uh, a dot or any other visual stimulus to you for less than 100 milliseconds, you won't perceive it consciously sure. you'll perceive it unconsciously you'll still process it in the brain um in your visual mm -hmm. cortex but it'll be totally unconscious but if i present it to you for longer than 100 milliseconds then it actually becomes consciously perceived yeah. um so a lot of the early neuroscience on consciousness was trying to see what regions of the brain activate um when you go over that threshold from unconscious to conscious processing 
Um, so that's interesting, you know, but I don't think it's nearly as interesting as psychedelics because psychedelics are about way more than just, you know, consciously versus unconsciously perceiving something like a visual stimulus. Um, it totally changes the landscape of your consciousness. Um, psychedelics make you um, experience radically different states of consciousness um, than anything that you would be able to access um, in your mm -hmm. normal sober waking experience. Um, profound experiences of interconnectedness of timelessness and spacelessness, of the boundary between the self and the other dissolving. Um, when you uh, try more intense psychedelics like DMT, um, it opens up this like completely different dimension of subjective experience um, where you literally hallucinate this extraordinarily sophisticated um, reality that is completely different from ours. And people experience all sorts of um, uh, all sorts of extraordinary things, um, ranging from like spirits to aliens to you name it. Um, but it's just like utterly astounding how the brain's able to construct this entirely separate reality when you're on psychedelics. Yeah. So I think, I think psychedelics are undoubtedly in my mind, like the single best portal into studying consciousness. Um, and to really also just That's like it. opening up our study of consciousness to completely new heights. Um, I think a lot of neuroscience has just been stuck in this paradigm of like, you know, um, goal-oriented, um, task-dependent, reward-based learning. You know, like you you feed you you feed a mouse, uh, uh, you give a mouse a reward, you feed a monkey some orange juice, right? Um, uh, in order to get it to like perform some like simple tasks. And you know, like that's definitely advanced our understanding of neuroscience a lot, but it it hasn't at all shed light on I think like the fundamental questions: what is what is what is conscious experience, and, and what are what is the potential of consciousness? Okay, nice. So it seems like uh, there's kind of uh, two categories that you can like t t divide the uses of psychedelics. So there's one to like a uh, to have that curator experience to like a uh, to 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 maybe get closer to 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 the objective truth, right? Then there's also like um. There's the side that aims to be able to, to, to use those to help others. Yeah. So like uh, with things like PTSD, mm -hmm. depression. So how do psychedelics help with those mental illnesses? Yeah, absolutely. Um, we live in a very exciting time for psychedelics. Um, PTSD was just recently, uh, sorry, not PTSD, uh, MDMA was just recently approved um, for limited use as a therapeutic for PTSD in the United States. Um, uh, I think psilocybin is in, I think, still stage two of uh, FDA approval, but somebody needs to um, fact check me on that for treatment-resistant mm -hmm. depression. Um and uh, there are a number of also for-profit um, companies that are trying to use variants of psychedelics um, in order to uh, both treat mental illness and also um, uh, improve uh, mental health for people who are uh, mentally well. Um, so there's, there's, you know, just a lot of uh, new and exciting research on the therapeutic um, benefits of psychedelics. And it seems like the therapeutic benefits of psychedelics are very wide ranging. Uh, I mean, like you've got MDMA for PTSD, psilocybin for treatment resistant depression. Um, but there's also a lot of emerging evidence that um, psychedelics can treat a whole host of other uh, mental illnesses. Um, I, for example, interned at this research institute called the Qualia Research Institute which is mm -hmm. trying to integrate the science of psychedelics into a more holistic understanding of consciousness. 
Um, and um, the Quality Research Institute takes great interest in all forms of, of, of suffering, both physical and mental. Um, and one of the worst forms of suffering is something called uh, cluster headaches, um, which uh, are typically worded, rated as uh, one of the worst experiences <laughs> known to humanity. Okay. Um, it's always you know, ranked as like a 10 out of 10 painful experience. Um, it's painful enough to drive people to wow. commit suicide. It's like literally okay. the worst, worst kind of headache wow. you can possibly imagine. Um, sure. And there are treatments for this, um, but uh, some of the treatments don't work. And, um, and it, there's actually emerging evidence that DMT can be used as a treatment for cluster headaches. Uh, so that's very exciting. Um, and yeah, also psychedelics um, are being explored as avenues for treating addiction. Um, there seems to be like this huge effect that, that psychedelics have. Um, on treating uh, nicotine addiction, um, addiction to other substances. Um, and it seems to be, uh, the, prelim the, the preliminary research seems to suggest that um, psychedelics can be more powerful than a lot of other existing treatments for addiction. Um, so okay. just like this, this whole host of, um, you know, mental disorders and also physical illnesses, um, psychedelics seem to be able to treat. I see. Okay, so why is it that uh, that it works so well for uh, like m mental disorders? Do, do you feel like uh, there may be like a shortcut to to rectifying some problem that yeah. maybe uh, that maybe something that would take a bit longer, like a m m m meditation or c CBT, that you'd learn more from th th those things or? Or like, do you feel that um, that psychedelics are just better for for those things? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think meditation and psychedelics may have similar effects on the brain. Um, some there there actually is evidence to show that um, the two have uh, do have similar um, interactions with the brain. They they both seem to alter activity in the default mode network, which is the region of your brain that's responsible for a lot of internal self-directed self-related cognition um like mind wandering distractions mental time travel where you project yourself into the past and into the future mm -hmm. um uh but to to return to like the the main um gist of your question um yeah i i do think that um the research on why psychedelics have such powerful effects on the mind is still very preliminary um we don't really understand this yet um, yeah. But one of the most exciting, I think, frameworks for understanding the effect of psychedelics on the brain um, is something called Rebus. Um, it stands for Relaxed Beliefs Under Psychedelics. Um, it was developed by um, two leading neuroscientists of the contemporary era, um, Robin Carr Harris, who's done a lot of the leading research on psychedelics, and Carl Friston, um, who's the most cited neuroscientist, or one, I think the most influential neuroscientist um, of the contemporary era. Um, mm -hmm. And it basically tries to um, integrate two different frameworks. Um, one is the entropic brain theory, um, which suggests that psychedelics basically increase the amount of entropy in your brain. Um, okay. And the second is the free energy principle, um, which roughly says that the brain is constantly trying to minimize prediction error. It's trying to minimize the uh, difference between your predictions about the world and the actual sensory signals you receive from the world. And yeah. um, in this free energy principle framework, 
um, you have this hierarchical view of the brain where the brain is receiving these bottom-up sensory signals. Uh, and then there's top-down cognitive control, which is trying to predict what the sensory signals are going to be. Um, so uh, oftentimes, the um, top-down cognitive control um, is able to uh, provide um, uh, is able to provide uh, ex sufficient explanations or interpretations um, of those sensory signals. Um, but under the effect of psychedelics, um, the top-down cognitive control exerted by the brain actually becomes a lot weaker. Um, so the bottom-up sensory information gets liberated, whereas the top-down cognitive control over the um, sensory signals becomes less constrained. Um, okay. So uh, as a result, um, you end up having this like flood of sensory stimulus, and your brain isn't really able to explain that all of that sensory information. Um, and in other words, that basically just means that like the normal concepts that you use to describe the world suddenly become a lot less effective. Um, and you're, and, and that might explain why, for example, you have this experience of like perceiving the world for the first time of, of returning to the sense of awe and wonder that you had when you were a little kid on psychedelics. Um, and so I think that might underlie a lot of the effects, uh, of, um, psychedelics on mental health. Take, for example, addiction um, or trauma. Um, in the case of mm -hmm. trauma, um, you have these like deeply entrenched uh, beliefs in your mind that are constantly shaping your conscious experience. Um, and so that basically means that there is a lot of top-down control um, that your brain is exerting on the sensory, on your sensory signals that basically interprets all of your, um, all of the sensory signals in light of your traumatic experiences. Um, but when that top-down cognitive control gets loosened under the influence of psychedelics, that basically means that um, your trauma also ends up exerting less of an influence on your moment-to-moment -moment sensory experience. Um, so okay. as a result, the, the, the grip of your trauma on your consciousness gets loosened. Um, so that could be um, one explanation for how psychedelics um, are able to heal trauma. Same thing with addiction, same thing with a lot of other uh, mental illnesses. Okay, so it sounds like uh, with that top-down control, that it's more like a choice that we're choosing yeah. to not pay attention to these kind of to to like a uh, that bottom-up sensory input that we're yeah. choosing to follow these like a uh, habitual patterns of thought. Exactly. So yeah. is it more like a choice that 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 we don't realize that we're doing? Yeah, yeah. In part, it's a choice. I mean, choice gets tricky, right? Because like, uh, I, I think like a lot of depressed people um, don't choose to be depressed. And certainly a lot of people who sure, you know, sure. have traumatic experiences don't choose to be, um, uh, you know, influenced by their traumas. Um, uh, but yeah, I mean, I, I do think that like, to a large extent for people who are mentally well, there is this choice that we constantly have uh, every moment of our conscious experience whether or not we want to um, pay attention to um, the moment-to-moment -moment, um, sensory perceptual experience that we're having, um, or whether or not we choose to be caught up in our minds. Um, you know, one of like the essential teachings of mindfulness meditation is that um, there's so much of your perceptual experience that you completely lose out on because you're completely caught up in your mind. Um, yeah. You're caught up in the stories that your mind is telling itself. You're caught up in your own internal monologue. And as a result, you lose awareness of, you know, the feeling of your hand resting um, on 
uh, resting on the chair, the feeling of your feet resting on the floor, um, mm. you know, um, the all the sounds that, that 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 are constantly passing through your environment. There's all this like rich sensory data that you're constantly um, not aware of because of the fact that your experience is dominated by your mind. I see. Yeah. So there's like kind of a balancing act that you need because obviously the mind is useful to be able yeah. to make predictions to maybe introspect about the past. But it's like there has to to be a balance because if you yeah. spend too long in your head, then you lose mm-hmm. touch with like the the world around you. Exactly. The goal is not to completely deactivate your mind, but rather to get into a more healthy relationship with your mind. Mm, nice, yeah. So tell us about the Oxford Psychedelic Society, like uh, like what you guys aimed to do with like uh, promulgating the idea of psychedelics. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah, so I mean... I think it's I think it's threefold. I think the first thing is just promoting more awareness about psychedelics. Um, psychedelics, in spite of you know undergoing this modern renaissance where they are starting to become more accepted, are still a very taboo topic. Um, so I was actually the um, co-founder of the Harvard Science and Psychedelics Club before um, I joined and became president of the Oxford Psychedelic Society, and um, I found that that. Um, that a lot of people were um, unwilling to even officially sign up for our events on Facebook because they didn't want to have their name associated with psychedelics on social media. Um, okay. So it's it's still a very tri- tricky topic. Um, it's still the kind of thing that's very hard to talk about. Um, and I mean, you know, like using psychedelics is still illegal in, in a lot of places. Yeah. Um, though we are starting to see decriminalization in a lot of different areas in the United States. Um, Cambridge, Massachusetts, where Harvard is located, um, just decriminalized Um uh, a lot of, uh, if not all, I think illegal drugs. Um, somebody to oh, really? fact check me on that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. Well, exciting, so like yeah. for recreational uses. Mm-hmm. Uh, so yeah, de- so decriminalized. Um, yeah, for recreational use, I guess. Um, and then Oregon is actually implementing this really cool model. Um, this is a total side note, um, where they are not quite legalizing psychedelics, but not quite medicalizing it either. They're decriminalizing it, but the way that they're decriminalizing it is they're making psychedelics available to anybody. It can be mentally ill people. It can also be mentally well people. Um, Mm -hmm. But you have to try it in a um, licensed professional therapeutic setting. So if you walk into a center with professional therapists that offers, um, you know, psychedelic um, treatments, um, you can go in, try psychedelics, um, but you don't need to be mentally ill. Um, you can be mentally okay. well and just be interested in, you know, trying psychedelics from like a therapy. Yeah, sure. Yeah. Um, anyway, total, total side note, uh, got no. distracted. Uh, yeah. Um, so the Oxford Psychedelic Society, yeah. Um, promoting awareness of psychedelics, I would say is a big thing. Second thing also, um, just, uh, exploring, um, Exploring psychedelics as a uh, treatment um, for, you know, a lot of mental health issues. Um, And then third, also um, investigating um, the effect of psychedelics on consciousness. Um, So we do a lot of events um, where we invite psychedelic researchers um, and other people who are involved in um, the field of psychedelic studies and also like, um, and also like the other constellation of topics surrounding psychedelics, like, for example, psychedelic decriminalization, um, psychedelic capitalism, et cetera. Um, inviting speakers to come share their research, share their work on psychedelics. Um, mm-hmm. 
um, with other students, with both other students at the university and also um, the um, broader Oxford community. Um, all of our events are open to the public. Um, and also, um, the fourth thing I should say is that you know the psychedelic society is also a social community. So um, it's a place where people who are interested in psychedelics and consciousness can sort of just gather together um, and um, and and uh, share their insights on the share their insights and their interests uh, on the topic um, because. Uh, I find that, you know, it's because of the taboo, it's still hard to get communities that are centered around psychedelics. Um, yeah. But I find that people who are who are interested in psychedelics tend to be like really, really passionate about it. Um, mostly just because like of how of, of how significant psychedelics are um, in the effect that they have on your conscious experience. I see. So um, how so like uh, how do people normally perceive you guys like in oxford and uh, and also like a generally like a, like a what is the perception of the society do yeah. people like see it as a good thing um maybe a bad thing yeah so i haven't been in oxford for too long yet um i was in oxford for less than two months um back in september to november of last year um and then uh i was um, doing my degree remotely from November to April. And then I only just got back to Oxford a couple of days ago. Um, I will say that, um, so yeah, I will say that I don't know too much about the reputation of the society um, in the broader Oxford community. Um, I think I can comment more on this though um, from my experience uh, at Harvard. Um, yeah. I think that like, you know, when you create a psychedelic society, like, there's always going to be like a group of people who don't take you seriously um, and who think that you're just like a bunch of like, you know, hippies doing drugs more or less. <laughs> sure. um, and so, you know, even though like nobody ever explicitly said that, you know, I do think that like that was to a large extent, like the, the perception that we did have on campus. But nonetheless, you know, I, because of the fact that like we were doing a lot of events on psychedelic science um, and like the actual academic research of psychedelics, um, I think we did a lot to also just like counteract that perception as well. Um, and, you know, the yeah. same is true. The same is true at Oxford. Like, you know, we are first and foremost, like um, an organization that's trying to understand psychedelics from an academic perspective, um, mm -hmm. both the science and also the culture too. Um, so, uh, so, you know, like we're not, we're not, we're not trying to like advocate for the recreational use of psychedelics. Um, we're trying to really, understand um in a principled um uh academic way um how psychedelics affect the mind and how they affect culture yeah okay maybe i'm wrong but also like maybe the ultimate goal is to just like uh, understand how the mind works and how it relates to the universe because i see also that you've got these breath work workshops so maybe just expand on those yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, so, yeah, uh, Oxford just started its last term of the year um, uh, earlier this week. And so um, we're hosting eight events this term. Um, and the first event uh, was psychedelic breathwork. Um, so uh, no psychedelics were involved, but um, the psychedelic breathwork technique is one where you're basically just doing like free flowing, deep breathing. Um, while you're listening to music. Um, and in spite of the fact that like, there aren't really that many instructions, there's not that much guidance, um, it can be really powerful. Um, so like during yesterday's session, 
um, we had someone who had recently um, lost a best friend um, and she was okay. able to, she said she was finally able to say goodbye to that friend as a result of the breath work that she did. Um, there were other people who said that they had never experienced anything like it before where they just felt like super relaxed. Um, I myself felt like this, like this very re restorative, rejuvenating effect on my consciousness where I just like felt very, very centered. Um, so yeah, it's amazing how you can use the breath as a vehicle. Um, to just like really be able to like have a profound effect on your consciousness. Um, and yeah. Uh, yeah, so like we, we host, um, uh, we try to host like one to two uh, healing events per term um, where we um, try to explore altered states of consciousness um, with a healing effect um, without the use of psychedelics. So using, for mm. example, breath work, other techniques. Yeah. So is it, is it, is it like... Um the goal to kind of have the altered states as the norm like uh, is it possible to just like have that ego death all, yeah. all, all the time because i try to to be mindful myself right yeah but i notice like uh, there's a variation because sometimes yes mm -hmm. there'll be thoughts in my head that will come mm -hmm. there'll be times where there are no thoughts but yeah. can there be a state where where you never again go back to just having that that sense of self but maybe that'll yeah. be bad but do you tell me yeah that's a that's a great question um should altered states of consciousness be the norm um i personally have gone back and forth a lot on this issue um i think there's lots of impact there you mentioned the self for example at the end um mm. like the, the the core teaching of buddhism is that there is no such thing as the self um the self is an illusion, more or less. Um, and, you know, under the influence of psychedelics, you experience this thing called ego death, where you lose your sense of self. Um, and uh, this happens, too, in deep states of meditation. Um, and is it a good thing to completely give up the self? Um, I, I, do think, I, I do think that um, ego death is a good thing. Um, Although, you know, I am, I don't really have a firm stance on the issue. I definitely could be persuaded that like holding on to some aspect of the self is a good thing. Um, yeah. In terms of more, in terms of altered states of consciousness more generally, um, I would say that, um, you know, I don't think that uh, life should be centered around the pursuit of constantly chasing altered states of consciousness. Um, sure. because that leads you to become attached to this notion, um, that like, you know, that creating constant newness, constant stimulation, um, in your constant, in your conscious experience is a thing that you should be orienting your life around. I don't think that's the case. I do think that if you, yeah. you know, end up just like chasing highs all the time, then you can become, you know, uh, quite dissatisfied quite quickly. Um, mm -hmm. but I do think nonetheless that like, some injection of new radically altered states of consciousness is an important thing to have in your life. Um, you know, and whether that's on a weekly basis or a monthly basis or a yearly basis, who's to say, um, I do think one of the most exciting things about the science of consciousness is that we can actually, you know, answer questions like that. What is the frequency with which you should have altered states of consciousness? But I do think that like on some, you know, regular or irregular basis, um, you should, um, have these profound mystical experiences um, where the landscape of your conscious experience gets totally altered. Yeah, I see. So more like just like having it like as a, as a t -t 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 tool in the box 
that is yeah. something that you can use to just to to just like a to manage the yeah. stresses of life and as well uh, the the, uh, the sense of ego just yeah. knowing that that it's not real but, but appreciating that it does have its uses like for example like in a situation like where where your life is in danger there, yeah. there is a need to have that ego right yeah 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 absolutely i was actually about to say that yeah um like there are many practical situations where you need to hang on to some semblance of self if you had no concept of self whatsoever, then, um, you know, uh, if you're getting attacked by a tiger, you're just going to let the tiger eat you, right? Because, yeah. like, there's no need for self-preservation anymore. Yeah. Um, and, you know, I mean, like, you know, uh, a lot of Buddhists would say still that, yeah, you do need to hang on to some concept of the self. Um, don't let go of the self completely. Um, there are many situations where, like, the, the self, you know, comes in handy. Um, and, uh, and uh, yeah, like, when you go really deep into meditation, you can access, like, these extraordinary states where you're able to, like, you know, totally enter, like, completely orthogonal um, dimensions of reality as, as perceived by your mind. Um, yeah. Just, like, to totally float away from 3D space and time. But, like, advanced meditators, like, wise teachers will always tell you that even if you're able to access the states you always got to come back to earth like yeah, you got to sure. be able to drive your car to work <laughs> you know yeah you got to be able to get behind a wheel and go from a to b um you uh yeah you can't just like totally float away so yeah sure, to a large sure. extent it's like being able to figure out how to access altered states of consciousness at the right time and then be able to manage your practical needs at other times mm. Yeah, no, that makes sense. So tell us, like, uh, some of the talks that you've uh, that have been on uh, on Zoom, like, or like, uh, what are some uh, kind of insights that you've learned? Something that really made you think uh, with the talks at the society. Mm, that's a great question. Well, um, we're hosting, as I mentioned, eight events this term. Um, there are two events that I planned. Um, one is called the Cutting Edge of Psychedelic Science, which is happening um, next uh, Thursday, um, 7.30 p.m. Um, and again, all of our events are open to the public. I could definitely um, share uh, the Zoom links with um, your audience. And then the second event that I um, helped plan is something called uh, Accessing Other Dimensions on DMT. Um, mm -hmm. And both events um, involve um, some of the leading uh, and most innovative um, uh, minds in in psychedelic research um and so the first event the cutting edge of psychedelic science um uh, is going to involve three talks by three different psychedelic scientists um one is going to be on uh the effects of psychedelics on trauma um and okay. like just creating a novel scientific framework for that another is going to be on this new cutting edge study um called dmtx um the x stands for extended um which basically seeks to extend the length of uh, DMT trips in order to create more profound and immersive breakthrough experiences on DMT. So with DMT, when you get to high enough doses, you can have something called a breakthrough, um, where you access this like completely orthogonal uh, dimension of reality in your subjective in your subjective experience. Um, that was what I was mentioning earlier, where like you can like your brain just constructs like a completely different like reality, total hallucination, um, right? Where you you see just like extraordinary things alien yeah. spirits whatever hyper so not like a dream not uh, like something a dream, that goes like way it feels a dream that feels very beyond. Real, like a totally vivid dream um yeah like a lucid dream 
times 100. <laughs> okay. Um, wow. Uh, and then the third speaker is um, named Michael Shartner. He's going to be talking about um, a, he's going to be talking about uh, deep neural networks for simulating uh, DMT hallucinations, um, as well as how um, psychedelics um, increase the um, diversity of brain signals. Um, mm -hmm. So that's one event. The other event, um, accessing other dimensions with DMT, um, is going to be with the um, lead scientist who's heading up that uh, DMTX study. Um, another is going to be with um, this guy who did a lot of the pioneering research on on DMT. His name is uh, Rick Strassman. Um, he like did a lot of he he was like kind of the first person to um, in the contemporary era to to like you know study DMT um, in the lab um and uh and ask like patients how they felt for example after taking dmt um and then um andrew gallimore um who is the creator of something called alien information theory which basically um is the claim that like when you spend long enough in the dmt state um you can actually like build up this um you can basically build up like this sort of dream world in your head um where it's like a totally separate world that your brain is able to access once you're on DMT. Uh, and you can like sort of just build out that world. Um, okay, well, like you, enough like you can come back to it. Yeah, exactly. You can come back to it, but also like you can like, you can like construct it too with your own brain. Um, it's sort of like if you had a way of returning to the same dream every night, then mm -hmm. over time that dream would become more vivid. You would see more things. It would just be more fleshed out. Um, and the idea is that you could do the same thing with DMT as well. Um, um, so that's one component of his theory. There are also a lot of other components. The event hasn't happened yet. So um, I, I'm not yeah. um, quite well equipped to comment on the rest of the theory. But um, yeah, those are just um, two different uh, events. Nice. I mean, it sounds like um, that with like uh, the proliferation of the research of psychedelics, that yeah. we could potentially like a uh, reach a point where we can like really get in tune w w with ourselves and like m maybe like a uh, just become like uh, that kind of enlightened kind of people yeah. the, the fact yeah. that uh, that we no longer that that we can see b b beyond our lives but still yeah. ha have an appreciation yeah yeah so i don't think that psychedelics will ever lead to enlightenment i think they can open the door to enlightenment. They can give you flashes of insight of what enlightenment is like, but psychedelics themselves will never get you to enlightenment itself. Um, but nonetheless, I think that, yeah, they're an important tool. Right. Yeah. So like they open that doorway to making a start. Yeah. Okay. So, exactly, exactly. So what do you think is like a, the roadmap to making it a legal thing? Yeah, it's a great question. Um, psychedelic decriminalization, legalization, um, um, are things that I know less about than psychedelic science. Mm -hmm. um, but, uh, you know, in, in the U.S., at least, I can't really comment elsewhere. Uh, I mean, Portugal has, has been decriminalizing all psychedelics since, like, 2001. Um, yeah. But uh, um, the, in the U.S., um, this movement is beginning to pick up. There's something called decriminalized nature, um, which is trying to um, decriminalize, I believe it's just entheogens in particular, natural entheogens. Um, so these are psychedelics that, um, emerge naturally from the earth. So that includes, um, psilocybin, which is the ingredient in magic, magic mushrooms, um, DMT, ayahuasca, uh, peyote, um, LSD is not considered a, a natural psychedelic. Um, 2CB is not considered a natural psych psychedelic. Those are all artificially synthesized substances. Um, sure. 
And so, you know, that's been picking up a lot of ground. Um, I think they were able to um, to get um, Oakland to uh, decriminalize national antigens. I was actually at the uh, town hall for that um, in 2019. Um, mm -hmm. And that was quite amazing. I was at the town hall back in like May of 2019. And then like a couple weeks later or something, the city council um, passed the legislation to decriminalize uh, the national antigens. It was amazing, like the, how quick the <laughs> turnaround time was. And I just remember like, you know, like, tons of people coming to the to the town hall to just like speak about their own experiences with psychedelics how psychedelics like you know um vastly improve their mental health how it helped them overcome their addiction um just so many incredibly profound like first person stories um mm. so yeah i think actually like at the level of the city council like just individual cities um uh movements uh grassroots movements like decriminalized nature um can potentially have a huge effect on um on getting legislation passed to decriminalize um, psychedelics. Um, okay, nice. Yes. So just starting yeah. from the grassroots, then just trying yeah. to like a uh, to 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 just to to spread that awareness. Then yeah, yeah. then eventually hoping that it passes in like a uh, higher places. Yeah, yeah. And you know, I think the town hall is actually a surprisingly effective medium. I mean, I can only really speak from my own personal experience at that town hall in Oakland. Sure. But um, the politicians there were surprisingly open minded. Um, uh, like, um, you know, I think like a lot of the politicians were definitely skeptical for sure. Um, um, and, and, you know, it's not surprising given like the long history that the U S has with the war on drugs. Um, yeah. but, uh, but yeah, I mean, like a lot of them were, I think, willing to accept the idea that psychedelics can have an effect on mental health. And I think they were definitely really swayed by the first person accounts that were given at that town hall. Um, so if you have open-minded politicians who are willing to listen to citizens talk about psychedelics, you could actually go. Yeah. Away. Okay. Cool. Nice. Yes. So, so I guess like that, that you start off like with, um, with the benefits that will help people that are like yeah. not well, then yeah. you like maybe uh, take it up a notch and then like, uh, yeah. Yeah. you begin t to make it more widespread. Yeah, yeah, I, uh, yeah, I, I can't really comment too much on psychedelic legalization since it's not something I know very much about. But yeah, I, I don't think that that legalizing psychedelics is the right move. I think that you know something like what Oregon did, um, a middle ground between medicalization and legalization, is the right path to pursue. Mm -hmm. Okay, nice. Yeah, so, so obviously, like we don't want to uh, to tell people to have psychedelics, but uh, yeah, but it's obvious that that you know more beyond psychedelics, like about spirituality mindfulness so like a, yeah. what resources or books would you recommend to the listeners to to get started to be able to inform themselves yeah um i would highly recommend how to change your mind by michael pollan um which is i think a a book that that also does a good job of, of highlighting how psychedelics can also be very harmful too um you know psychedelics are um, one of the safest substances, um, they are not addictive. Um, uh, they tend to not, you know, be physically detrimental. Um, but if used in the improper setting, um, they can, they can have very harrowing psychological effects. Um, mm -hmm. so I would encourage, um, any of your audience members to just be really careful, um, about making sure that they're in the right set and setting. Um, reading the guides on that, um, uh, 
set and setting refers to the mindset and also just like the environment in which you're doing psychedelics. Um, do it in a place where you feel comfortable and do it at a time when you feel like you're um, mentally healthy. Um, yeah. Because, uh, um, yeah, I mean, like there are, I, I mean, I know people indirectly, for example, who have uh, killed themselves because of bad trips with psychedelics. It's rare, sure. but it can still happen. Yeah. Okay. Nice. Yeah. Uh, and also, I know that you uh, that you read the power of now. Yeah. Is yeah. that something that that you'd recommend? One hundred percent. One hundred percent. Yeah. That book changed my life. Um, the power of now was the first thing that introduced me to consciousness. It's it it's it indirectly led me to psychedelics as well. Um, it was just like a totally different perspective. I mean, you know, like I grew up in an environment that was like very competitive, lots of high pressure, you know? Um, and you know, I, 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 my parents are both, uh, Asian immigrants, but, um, you yeah. know, I grew up in like a very like Western, I, I, I felt like I grew up like in a very Western mindset that was like very much about like climbing the ladder, you know, of success. Yeah. Um, and the power of now is totally like, forget about the mind. It's just an illusion be here now, focus on the present. Don't worry about climbing the ladder. Don't worry about goals in the future that you have to reach. Just be here now. And that was just complete change of perspective. Um, really grounded me, I think. Um, and then also uh, Be Here Now by Ram Dass is another book that I would highly recommend. That one mm -hmm. is more influenced by psychedelics. It explicitly mentions psychedelics, whereas The Power of Now doesn't. Um, it was written yeah. by Ram Dass, who was you know part of the whole psychedelic counterculture movement and also... Um, did a lot of studies on psychedelics at Harvard back in the early 60s. Mm -hmm. Cool, nice. Well, yes, yeah, so do ch 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 check out th th those books. And yeah. thank you so much for, for coming on to this Absolutely. podcast. Thank you for having me. <laughs>